0: Hello, everyone. It's good to be back on air. And, you know, it didn't seem that long ago that um, I was talking about part one of uh, Pennsylvania, especially with our uh, book that we've been uh, discussing called Signing Their Lives Away, about the fame and misfortunes of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Well, uh, we are still going to be talking about Pennsylvania and we are now on part two, or should I say part two of two, with Pennsylvania. Uh, as I had mentioned, um, we focused last night on Benjamin Franklin and George Clymer. The other two signers from Pennsylvania that I feel are um, very worthy to discuss about are uh, George Taylor and uh, Benjamin Rush. Well, uh We're going to start off with uh, George Taylor. I didn't really even know anything about George Taylor until I obviously read this book last year. Of course, when I um, think of Pennsylvania and signers of the Declaration of Independence, uh, Benjamin Franklin was really the first person and really the only person of extreme significance that came to my mind. Um, But as I read the book, I also um, saw just how significant a role that the other uh, signers from Pennsylvania played, considering that out of all the colonies, they had the largest number of uh, delegates, or or you think about delegates or representatives, uh, who signed uh, the document being nine. And what I find um, really unique about the Pennsylvanians is that here many of them who came to the first Continental Congress did not want to um, relinquish their ties with England, especially uh, Mr. John Dickinson. And it turns out that people like George Clymer and uh, Benjamin Rush and uh, probably about three or four others came really at the last minute. And it was great because had it not been for this new wave of um, delegates from Pennsylvania, it's very possible that... um, there really would not have been enough of a majority uh, to get the um, motion approved for independence. So sometimes it takes a change in um, having um, a change of a uh, new uh, scenery, being in this case new uh, people to come along to make all the difference. And the best part is, is that even with this change in uh, delegates, they, there didn't need to be a long-term election for it. So anyways, we're going to talk about uh, Mr. George Taylor. He was born around or about 1716, and ironically, he was born in Ireland. Most historians say that he is considered to be the, the most mysterious of all the signers. Well, how is it that this man is the mysterious of all signers? Well, he while living in Ireland, he took up studying medicine. However, um, he realized that becoming a doctor just wasn't for him. And it's probably a good thing that he might have seen that at an early age, the last thing one would want to do is um, go into studying something, only in the end to realize by the time they're done with their apprenticeship that they spent, what, five, six years studying only to have wasted that time when it could have been spent on um, becoming something else. Well, around the age of 20, he leaves Ireland to uh, come to colonial America and arrives into Philadelphia with hardly any or no money. Well, remember, when immigrants even in the 18th century, coming in to Colonial America, they it's probably safe to say that many of them don't come in with any kind of money. But at the same time, they come in with a lot of uh, raw determination to make it strong, or should I say big time. It turns out that based on records, Mr. Taylor's trip over to Colonial America was paid for by a man named Mr. Savage. So, George Taylor became bound to Mr. Savage. And what kind of profession was Mr. Savage in? He was in what was called the iron business. And for Mr. Taylor, he was bound to Mr. Savage until the debt was repaid. So, in other words... I'm beginning to realize, based off of what I uh, did research earlier, that Mr. Taylor was what we would call an indentured servant. Now, when I think of indentured servants, I think of the group of men who came over in droves from England to Jamestown uh, when, the, when the English first established their uh, first settlement in the New World. Indentured servants had to um, spend anywhere from three to five years or longer um, to uh, work out their uh, contract in terms of fulfilling their contract. And after that time frame, they were um, declared to be freed. For some indentured servants, they might have um, come over to the New World as a result of um, working out their, um, or rather working off their, um, sentences. In other words, some of them could have been sent over to the new world as a result of, um, trying to get out of, um, how do I say getting out of, um, not so much getting out of jail for free, but, uh, working out a sentence that would say, reduce the punishment of an offense that was say committed in England, um, But it turns out, obviously, that Mr. Savage, not Mr. Savage, but Mr. Taylor, did not have a criminal record on him. It was just that he really had nowhere to go. And so Mr. Savage was, you know, kind enough to not only just pay for this man's trip, but to um, bound him um, to um, the Savage family until the debt was repaid. So, true or false, Was the debt repaid? The answer is yes. But how did Mr. Taylor himself go about making a fortune? Here is some unique irony. Mr. Savage died unexpectedly. And that was quite often the situation in those uh, times is that people sadly did die unexpectedly. Well, who does Mr. Uh, Taylor marry? He marries Mrs. Savage. (laughs) How about that? Servant, being Mr. Taylor, becomes the master of the iron business. It seems like a match made in heaven. When Mr. Taylor becomes a member of the Pennsylvania Assembly come 1764, he helped draft instructions for the Pennsylvania delegates attending the Second Continental Congress. He signed the Declaration of Independence on August the 2nd. He served in Congress, really, for less than a year. But during the time that the American Revolutionary War was going on, he did something that was... um, very unique. In 1777, he teamed up with a, a man from Georgia who would sign the who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, being um, a Mr. George Walton. The two of them helped negotiate a peace treaty with the Iroquois Indians at Easton, Pennsylvania. If anybody knows where Easton is, it's outside of Allentown. It's not far from uh, Nazareth and um, Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, I have a friend of mine from college who I keep in uh, regular contact with who is um, from Easton, PA. And I think she would be very pleased to know that, um, that I know exactly where Easton is. Uh, I, My roommate from college, he and I uh, visited our friend, um, one summer, um, about 20 years ago, and some other friends joined us as well. Uh, But in case any of you all want to know, you know, what is Easton, Pennsylvania known for? Well, there's a major um, amusement park not far from uh, Easton that's been around for many years uh, called Dorney um, Theme Park. And um, that was a great place to visit. So Not to get off track by any means, but um, it is important to kind of know where um, places are in relation to either a major city or other outlying uh, cities or towns uh, nearby. But nonetheless, Mr. Taylor teamed up with uh, George, George Walton from Georgia to negotiate this peace treaty. And this could be a good example of bipartisanship. For one, Mr. Taylor is from Pennsylvania Mr. Walton being from um, Georgia, it might be safe to say that here you have a Northerner and a Southerner coming together to um, work out a uh, peace treaty. That's just my um, opinion about it all. But it does make sense to have, have that kind of good bipartisanship when you consider that, you know, for one, all 13 colonies are, are different, but two, knowing that, okay, all the men from the 13 colonies did find common ground in some form, uh, big or small. So as for uh, Mr. Taylor, he served as a colonel in the militia, and his biggest contribution came through the ironworks business, as we know uh, earlier that that's the the business he was bound to under Mr. Savage, and then obviously took over the business upon uh, Mr. Savage's uh, passing. But through the ironworks businesses, his furnaces helped make grape-shot cannonballs and cannons. A very profitable business, think about it, you know, without making grape-shot and cannonballs and cannons. And, you know, what kind of defensive uh, measures are you going to have in place uh, when needing to fire back at the enemy, in this case being the British? Well, Mr. Taylor had two children with Mrs. Savage, and I hate to say this, but uh, in terms of dysfunction, as I've said before, it was prevalent even in the 18th century. Mr. Taylor, uh, sadly, did have an affair with the family's housekeeper. And it is uh, said to have been told that the housekeeper herself supposedly produced him five children. I hate to say this. Uh, Mr. Taylor is obviously the father of, could have been the father of illegitimate children born out of wedlock. Well, Mr. Taylor dies in 1781, about eight months before the British surrender at Yorktown, Virginia. But in the end, uh, Mr. Taylor can be best summarized as being the signer who started out as an indentured servant. Well... All of our forefathers obviously have started out somewhere, had to start out somewhere. And as for the case of Mr. Taylor starting out as an indentured servant, well, look where it ended up getting him. Yes, to uh, running a a successful um, business, or should I say iron business, but at the same time, even an indentured servant like him um, may not be so um, remembered for as um, one who. Not only had an affair with the housekeeper, but uh, sadly produced the housekeeper produced him five illegitimate children. I don't believe he was probably the first nor the last of the of our forefathers, not all of them, but for some who have had what we might call in today's time skeletons in their closets, um, or that phrase that people say so close but so far away. in other words, what we we what we would like to believe on the outside is the same on the inside, but uh, behind closed doors, you never know what's going on. So that could have that could easily have applied to Mr. Taylor. Our other signer we're going to talk about tonight is Benjamin Rush, and I would have to say of, of the four uh, signers from Pennsylvania that I have talked about, or being that Mr. Rush is the final one. I really would have to say that Benjamin Rush was my favorite of the four signers, and I will explain why here in a little bit. But what I do know is that Benjamin Rush was born in 1746. Ironically, he would have been born three years after Thomas Jefferson, whom was born in 1743. Benjamin Rush lost his father at a very young age, and he was raised by a single mother who worked in a grocery to secure an education for him. So in other words, young Benjamin Rush has his mother to thank for um, working above and beyond to um, make not only the essential sacrifices for her family, but by giving her son an opportunity to become something even more um, than what she herself might have, be, might have been able to have strived for. He went on to study medicine at home and abroad, and over time would become one of the most famous physicians and medical teachers of his time. He wasn't around for the vote on independence, but got elected to Congress after the Declaration of Independence got approved. He wrote pro-colonist news articles, and he was a good friend of Thomas Paine's. Of course, we all know what Thomas Paine was uh, well known for, being the author of Common Sense. Now, um, it's interesting enough, if any of you all are interested in wanting to know why Thomas Paine's book is called Common Sense, uh, it turns out that... um, What Thomas Paine wanted um, people in his time, not just people, but for the uh, signers of the Declaration of Independence to understand was that we had to get away from um, establishing, not just so much establishing alliances, but he wanted uh, us to get away from um, having to be dependent on a uh, higher form of government who was basically considered no longer reliable. In other words, it's one thing to be ruled by a king or a queen, but but the leaders that come after that one particular ruler who are viewed as being inept and ineffective, that's when you have to question your style of rule and say, hey, is this effective? Sure, it might have been um, okay 10 years earlier, but it's not doing the same things that it did before. So basically Thomas, it's safe to say that Thomas uh, Paine was a very early advocate of uh, democracy and an early advocate of um, governmental rule that was, um, what do you call it, that was uh, one that um, allowed for uh, people to be elected but at the hands of the people and that there would be fair representation In other words, nothing that would be similar to that famous saying of taxation without representation. Well, Benjamin Rush wrote about many areas of subjects that ranged from chemistry, medicine, areas of expertise, to philosophy, abolition of slavery, temperance. Does anybody know what temperance is? Well, temperance really came about... um, more notably in the late 19th century and very well into the beginning of the 20th century, temperance um, would, had, would have had to have done with um, the refraining of um, alcohol, most notably in the late 19th and into 20th century, um, conjoining with prohibition. But he also focused on uh, prison reform and... About And he also enjoyed writing about his uh, fellow colleagues, or should I say fellow signers, who wrote the Declaration of Independence. In other words, he, um, he kept extensive notes on fellow signers and other players in the American Revolution. In other words, he, had, he detailed which signers had humor, who had an awkward past, and to who was cynical there's nothing wrong with uh, being detailed in perhaps, how do you call it, doing observe, making observations. However, if one's not careful, they could have a bad tendency to share too much information about others. And that's the case of uh, Benjamin Rush. Do you think this was deliberate? Perhaps not. But all of us no matter what setting we're in, big and small, we do have to be careful because we are being watched whether we know it or not. So, Benjamin Rush himself had tendencies to share too much information about others, which did lead to conflict, big and small. Here's a good example of uh, what happened to him. He wrote a letter criticizing a superior on a doctor named Dr. William Shippen. Benjamin Rush felt it was okay to blame Dr. Shippen for the poor conditions that he saw in a particular setting. Well, the end result was not a good one for um, Dr. Benjamin Rush. He uh, was forced to resign. Well, yes, he was a doctor, but he also... um, had a, uh, what you call brief military career service. And that ended with an, with involvement in the Conway Cabal incident. I mentioned that, um, from a previous podcast when talking about Francis Lewis of New York, who had come to, um, George Washington's defense in the aftermath of the Conway Cabal incident. And, uh, I had mentioned in that uh, podcast about what cabal meant. A cabal, in case any of you have forgotten, a cabal, which is spelled C-A-B-A-L, that refers to a plot where people um, work together, or should I say in some cases conspire together, to um, come up with a plan that would lead to the ouster of an individual or individuals, and, um, And in this case, this incident was a plot to remove General George Washington. And it didn't involve just random uh, Joe Schmoes, but there were uh, military people who went along with this plan. Well, how is Benjamin Rush involved in it? He sent a letter anonymously. And we all know what anonymously means, or should I say anonymous? It means that you're not giving out your name. You're just writing a letter but you wish to not have your name slash identity revealed. Who receives this letter? None other than George Washington, or should I say General George Washington. After reading the letter, he is smart enough to know whose handwriting it is, and it's none other than Benjamin Rush's. Well, Benjamin Rush was fired. And I, I do believe it's probably safe to say that Mr. Rush himself was probably better remembered for his medical achievements versus being in, in the military, and I'll get to that part here shortly. What I can tell you is this. We're all being reminded of this, we're all being reminded of this at various times, not just in the present, but we've probably been reminded of it in the past and might every so often have to be reminded of it in the future, regardless of our age. There's a saying that we need to be remembered of. Don't always say everything that's on your mind. And that doesn't just apply to the verbal aspect. It also includes handwritten letters, like what Benjamin Rush himself wrote, to modern-day technology, like emails. You know, just because we send an email to someone and there's some sensitive information on there, and you've said stuff that you think is safe and you send it you never know what the receiver on the other end is going to interpret the email as being and you never know whom they're going to go to above them to share the the um, subject at hand so in other words it's one thing to share share with something or should I say it's one thing to share something to someone that is sensitive the problem is is that you've got to you've got to um, ask yourself, hey, is this person trustworthy? If not, then I need to think long and hard before sharing the information because if I do share it with them, there's no guarantee they're going to keep a secret. And we all have to uh, think about that because uh, just when we think we can trust someone, the opposite can happen. Now... uh, I said a moment ago that Benjamin Rush was better remembered for his uh, medical achievements versus being in the military. Well, he was a strong advocate of using mercury and bloodletting as a treatment for many ailments. And it does turn out that for a number of years, mercury uh, was used uh, to treat um, unique medical conditions, one of them being syphilis. And I think it, and I think mercury uh, was used in terms of treating syphilis up until about the early uh, beginnings of the 20th century. However, Doctor Rush was criticized by newspapers for questionable treatments like bloodletting. And uh, it turns out that uh, a, one of George Washington's doctors, who studied under Doctor Rush was present at his bedside uh, the night he died on December 14th of 1799. As most of us know, uh, George Washington was out on um, horseback. He was tending to the needs of his farm, but it was very cold and damp and rainy. And when he came inside, he was uh, feeling very um, lethargic, and his condition worsened to the point where doctors had to come in and um, not only just examine him, but faced uh, the worst-case scenario of, uh, of what his condition had become. He uh, developed what is called epiglottitis. And I learned about this in uh, Colonial Williamsburg about four or five years ago. Uh, I had, was always led to believe that he had contracted laryngitis which uh can lead to pneumonia well george washington probably did contract what is uh called pneumonia but his uh immune system became very uh weak and it got so weak to the point where he um could not could not really properly communicate he could not uh really do much of anything the doctors um felt that the best way to remedy his problem was to drain blood from his um from his uh, body and i do know that the average um amount of uh blood in terms of pints of overall blood in one's body is about 9 so it is safe to say that uh, the medical profession if i'm right drained about 4 or 5 pints out of 9 in Washington's body, assuming that by getting rid of all the bad blood that he would be cured. Well, it turns out that um, Washington um, met with the opposite. Sadly, he dies. And it turns out that one of the doctors wanted to perform what was called a uh, tracheotomy. They wanted to um, perform uh, surgery around his throat and I think the story has it that Washington denied it, and he basically said to the medical profession who was by his bedside, um, let me go in peace. I don't want to suffer no more. So uh, as for Benjamin Rush in this situation, he was sued for um, on the grounds of, um, of uh, giving out what you call controversial uh, practices with the bloodletting, but it turns out that in his uh, in this court trial, he was uh, cleared of any wrongdoing, which perhaps was a blessing because he was only going by what the best practices that were available at the time. But two, you know, everybody, even in today's uh, world of medicine, responds differently to treatments, and it just so happens that George Washington, sadly, did not respond. Um, well to the uh, treatment of bloodletting, but then again he lived to be 67, which was considered old age for his time. Well, what other uh, medical achievements did uh, Benjamin Rush uh, accomplish? Well he treated many patients at no charge and he also helped establish the Philadelphia Dispensary, which was the first free medical clinic in America. He went above and beyond the line of duty in 1793 to help scores of ill patients during a yellow fever epidemic that um, brought all kinds of havoc to Philadelphians. He was the first to write a textbook about mental ailments. I would say probably one of the most um, unique things that Benjamin Rush did, and this is something I uh, would have to admire him for, he was very good friends with, um, well, I mean, for one, he was obviously a signer to the Declaration of Independence, so he would have been good friends with many of the signers. But he was very good friends, I don't, he was not only good friends with John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, but he just had a lot of respect for both of them. You know, uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson um, obviously were. Uh, two men who came from different worlds, Thomas Jefferson being a southerner, John Adams a northerner. It was John Adams who said that uh, a Virginian needed to write, not just so much write the Declaration of Independence, but be its chief author. And how fitting, because Virginia it was the largest of the 13 colonies, and as all the other colonies knew, That if war was going to occur between England, between them and England, they had to go through Virginia first before just officially declaring uh, not just a war on England, but separation from the mother country. You know, John Adams was a big fan of conflict, whereas Thomas Jefferson wasn't. And while Mr. Adams and Mr. Jefferson did have a strong friendship for, a great period of time after uh, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. By the time our um, nation is established as a republic, however, their political ideologies um, go in different directions, but that's to be expected once you have a government that's established. And, of course, by the time George Washington's presidency comes to an end, he is very, very leery about political parties and the dangers they possess. And we can say that even in today's modern world of politics, but George Washington was, had laid the foundation in in a lot of ways for the dangers of politics, not just politics, but the political parties. Obviously you had the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, or what we call the Democratic-Republicans, established by Thomas Jefferson himself. But Washington feared that political parties would um, cause uh, p- partisanship, it would cause rancor, it would cause people to become so alienated and polarized to where um, national unity would be um, unevenly balanced, that um, if unchecked, that um, partisanship would basically destroy the um, lying foundations of a proper, um, what do you call it, democratic republic. Well, um, what I do know is this... uh, I can give you some examples here of how Tom, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson um, made political decisions that um, impacted not just the country, but perhaps impacted political ideology. John Adams, when when he was president, uh, passed the he didn't pass the law, but Congress did, and he signed it into law. And this was when the Federalists were in power. John Adams signed a bill into law known as the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. Here is the danger of what that act um, enabled. John Adams was very leery of people uh, questioning the government. In other words, he felt that those who questioned the government too much were... um, weren't just so much labeled as rabble, but were people who appeared to just be dissatisfied, uh, unhappy campers. So he signed this bill into law, making it a crime for anyone to question the government. And if they did, they would spend time in jail. Thomas Jefferson, as Adams's vice president, was vehemently opposed to this piece of legislation. He even told Adams himself that by signing this bill into law, you are trampling people's rights. In other words, you're trampling their ability to have free speech. You're trampling their, uh, their means to um, question their government, but by doing so in a, um, in a decent manner that is uh, non-threatening, Well, over time, that uh, piece of legislation was repealed. It didn't stay on the books for 100 years, I can tell you that much, but it was repealed. What kind of uh, legislation did Thomas Jefferson sign into law that was uh, controversial during his presidency? Well, we all know that Jefferson was president from 1801 to 1809, and what I can tell you is this. When John Adams um, lost re election to Thomas, he lost his re election bid to Thomas Jefferson. Historians also know that Alexander Hamilton, George Washington's Secretary of the Treasury, who, yes, was a very brilliant man when it came to financial, um, when it came to the financial aspects of government. However, historians know that Alexander Hamilton, interfered so much with John Adams' ability to win a second term that in the end, uh, historians have said that Mr. Hamilton himself was responsible for the demise of the Federalist Party. So when Thomas Jefferson becomes president, it ushers in a the transformation of one outgoing party into a new one. And many people were uh, very leery of a new political party assuming uh, power, not just in the White House but in Congress, pretty much the Jeffersonian Republicans, or what's known as the Democratic Republicans, take over all um, the branches of government. Even Jefferson himself went about tampering with the judiciary system his cousin, believe it or not, is John Marshall, who becomes Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court in eighteen oh one and stays in that position until eighteen thirty-five, the year he dies. And you couldn't have asked for two men with extreme political ideologies, not just extremism, but just different modes of thinking. Of course, John Adam I mean Tom John Marshall being a federalist, uh Whereas Thomas Jefferson, not just so much an anti-federalist, but um, small government um, power should lie in the hands of the farmers. Whereas for John John Marshall, and even Alexander Hamilton, they both, well most notably Alexander Hamilton, would have believed that the wealthy and the well-educated should be running the government. And that all powers should not supersede the federal government when it comes to uh, U.S. Supreme Court decisions. So, one of the big pieces of legislation that Thomas Jefferson signed that did create a lot of uh, backlash for the United States was in 1807. Now, why is 1807 a unique year? Well, it's a unique year because uh, there's a lot of... um, hostilities going on along the the seas we're trying to um, navigate freely and transporting goods leaving the United States but going to places like England or France or perhaps in the Caribbean but our sailors end up experiencing what's called impressment in other words you take the British uh, naval, the British Navy, rather, they are so low on um, people that the only way to get more men to enlist is to um, invade the enemy's ship and not only hold those men hostage, but make them come to um, join the, Brit- the British side against their own will. Well Thomas Jefferson is so fed up with all of this that he doesn't it's not so much that he doesn't like the fact that our men are being taken at their against their own will he sees the only way out as to put a, by putting a halt on a trade with Britain and France by issuing an embargo and what is an embargo it's a restriction Um, there are regulations as to what you can and can't do. So he signs a piece of legislation into law known as the Embargo Act of 1807, which restricts, it basically cuts off all trade with England and France. And he wants uh, Americans to become more independent. In other words, he wants um, all the states that are in existence at this time to uh, come together as one to make... um, Manufactured goods and any other kind of good that say we've been relying on too much from England and France to produce those goods here in our homeland and not have to worry about um, what do you call it, uh, foreign demand. The problem is, is that while it looks great on paper, it loses its luster on everyday people. Thousands of New Englanders are out of a job. How so? Well, think about it. Cities like Boston, Salem, Gloucester, Massachusetts, New York City, uh, Mystic, Connecticut, Newport, Rhode Island, uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and of course, even in 1807, Maine is considered part of Massachusetts. So, you know, you've got ports along the coast of Maine who are that are impacted by this. New Jersey, uh, even Maryland, any coastal. Um, town or city along the East Coast is going to be impacted by this law, but most notably the New Englanders are, and so thousands of men are out of a job. They can't ship their goods out because of this embargo, and it creates so much bad blood uh, that a handful of New England states are at this point wanting to secede from the United States to form their own their own separate union. So over time, the embargo act is repealed, but things just don't get back to being normal overnight. The bottom line is is that thousands of people were impacted by this, and it was pretty much done on uh, political boundary lines between those who were against it and those who were for it. Those who were for the embargo were the Anti-Federalists. Those who were against it were the opposite, being the Federalists. So it's not until 1809, which is the year that uh, Thomas Jefferson leaves Washington to go back home, and of course, Benjamin Rush, not to get off track but all this ties into what Be- into what benjamin rush um theorizes not just theorizes but um having a um a dream about two men who were friends at one point and then had a fallout and All of a sudden, in this dream that Mr. Rush had, or should I say Dr. Rush himself had, the dream had an end result of two friends burying a hatchet and moving forward to where their friendship stayed intact until their deaths. And that is where Dr. Benjamin Rush has been credited with restoring the friendship between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. The friendship was mended by Rush's own letters, and he served as a mediator. If it hadn't been for Dr. Benjamin Rush, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson probably would not have been uh, reunited. And it's safe to say that in 1809, when Jefferson leaves um, the presidency to go back to Monticello, of course, James Madison is the new president. You only have two former presidents living. They're none other than John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. They need to set a precedent for the country. Being two former presidents, you may not agree with everything, but you want to be able to show civility. You want to be able to show respect for one another, and you want to be able to um, bring people together to know that, hey, we might have different um, ideologies but we can set them aside and still um, be civil towards each other and, um, and, and show the American people what it means to be an American and to show the American people that, hey, we can work through things together, big and small, and learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. And during their lifetime, the last 17 years, from 1809 to 1826, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams wrote several letters to one another. And what do you know? These two men died on July 4th, 1826. They they both died 13 years after Dr. Benjamin Rush passed away in 1813. And Dr. Rush lived to be about 67 years old, which was, you know, considered old age even for his time. Who would have ever thought that two of our most prominent forefathers would have died on the same day, being none other than July 4th, 50 years after the Declaration of Independence was officially approved as the means, or shall I say, as the as the cornerstone of separation from England. Historians know that Thomas Jefferson died in the early morning hours of July 4th, and they know that he was quoted or was supposedly had said to one of his servants, is it the 4th? In other words, did I live to see our... Um, our birthday, in terms of our 50th um, birthday of uh, independence. John Adams died later that day, and of course he had no idea that his friend Thomas Jefferson was already dead. But historians know this, and and supposedly he did say this, Thomas Jefferson still survives. And how true that Thomas Jefferson even to this day survives. Think about it. We have him to thank for freedom of religion, not just for the Virginia statutes of religious freedom, but we have him to thank for religious freedom in general, because without freedom of religion, we're still tied to not just the Anglican Church, but we are still bonded to what that um, notion of uh, church and state is all about. We have Thomas Jefferson to thank for the elimination of church and state. We also have John Adams to thank for the right to a fair and speedy trial, and as I mentioned from um, Dan Abrams' book, John Adams Under Fire, about the Boston Massacre trials, yes, it was a very unpopular move on John Adams' part to represent the accused being the eight British soldiers and their commander, But in the end, he helped lay the foundation for the judiciary system that we have to this day when it comes to a fair and speedy trial, no matter what crime you've committed. So I think it's fair to say that both men survive. And if you ask me um, if I could pick two forefathers, or should I say two most notably prominent men to have dinner with who signed the Declaration of Independence, they would be none other than Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, one from New England, one from the South, despite different political ideologies. To have dinner with both of them, to know where they stand and to know where they come from and how they can still get along and learn to disagree without being disagreeable, would be all the worthwhile But there again, if it hadn't been for Dr. Benjamin Rush, these two men would never have been reunited. Thank you, Dr. Rush, for being um, such a great ardent um, patriot in your time. Well, that is all um, for this uh, podcast session, and uh, covering Pennsylvania has been a a great one. We're going to be moving on to a new colony in our next uh, podcast session, And I look forward to uh, sharing that one with you all here soon. Take care for now.